Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 25. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Hello, Tim Smith here, back for the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 25. I'm joined again by Ben Spencer and Christopher Russell. How's it going today, gentlemen? Going good. Hello, hello. We are here in the Guide Shack, the middle of week three of the fall 2017 Wilderness Bushcraft semester, and we are not supposed to be here right now. <laughs> we had planned to be out on the trail. We were going to be out on a large nearby lake, um, but we had a big spat of thunderstorms, and then we're going to get a solid day and a half of rain, so we decided to call an audible, um, and we're going to push that trip back two days so it gave us a nice morning to sit around drink coffee and and talk so what we're going to talk about today during the course is uh, we're going to talk about crafting and how crafting is a necessary component of a self-reliant lifestyle but before we get to there just a quick note of for all you aspiring guides out there that often guiding and leadership and leading groups in remote places one of the definitions of the job or I guess maybe the job descriptions would be it's your job to make really unpopular decisions and have people not like you so we had people finishing their canoe paddles that they carved last week and there was a big time crunch because we told them hey we're getting out on the water we got to get these things done we got to get them varnished we got to get them oiled and then um, <laughs> based on the weather I made the executive decision after consulting with these two guys to uh, push the trip back a bit for safety purposes um, Many of you have probably heard the story of that ill-fated 1996 day on Mount Everest when all those people died. There were a bunch of movies about it and stuff like that. Um, and those events happen when people aren't willing to, to change gears, when they're very goal-focused, uh, trying to get to the summit in the case of Mount Everest. Or for us, it would have been trying to get out to the far side of this huge lake uh, going through a thunderstorm. So one of the jobs of the guide is to always put safety first. And I tell people at the beginning of trips, at the beginning of courses, I said, I would gladly make you hate me, ruin your trip, and have you never, ever want to come back. I would much rather have that as an outcome than have somebody get hurt or much uh, worse, killed. So, uh, you know, safety is where we draw those, those lines. Um, if you study the accidents that have happened in outdoor recreation in the backcountry, often they happen as a result of two things. Number one, people being blissfully unaware 
of when systems change. Uh, for example, if you're paddling a river and you get two feet of rain, that river is not the same as the river that you paddle under normal conditions. And the other, the other reason why is with hubris. You know, if people are saying, I'm going to make it to the top of the mountain regardless of what the weather does, both of those are recipes for disaster. Um, anyway, if you want to read more, learn more about that, two great books, and we'll put them in the show notes. Number one, Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez, just a fantastic, fantastic book. And the second one that I'd recommend is called Lessons Learned. Anyway, you can check the show notes for those. So what have we been up to? Uh, it's been about 10 days since we last uh, checked in. So what have we been accomplishing on the course here? Yeah, that's right. It's crazy to think about. Um, it's been a week and a half here and we have accomplished a lot. Um, paddles are our biggest thing. Um, it's taken a long time. It always does to get those done. Um, it's the first time people are working with hand tools in that context. And it just takes a lot of energy to make it happen. Um, we've been keeping up with our plant studies, with our plant walks. And this week, or I should say last week, um, we did our first star talk, which is really exciting to get into the stars, both the academic side of it as far as reading about it and learning about first magnitude stars, all those kinds of things, as well as the practical side, getting out, um, observing, watching the movement of the stars and the constellations. So it's been an awesome 10 days. The, we're going to talk today at length about crafting, but a lot of things happen when people are making canoe paddles. It's our, it's our first big project. And I like to say that people are learning about wood and how trees come together. Things like wood grain, growth rings, knots. People are learning about hand tools, how they work, best practices, how to keep them sharp. Um, and also learning, learning uh, about things like blisters and, and how, you know, when you use your hands every day in the context that we do around here, it's significantly different than sitting at home and, you know, punching a, punching a remote control or turning the, turning the stove on to heat. You know, you're swinging an axe to get your firewood, using your knife to carve and make things uh, with regards to paddles, you know, pulling a draw knife, pulling a spoke shave, using a rasp, all those things. And, you know, middle of week three, and we've got some tired, we've got some tired hands and fingers out there. Do yeah. you guys agree? Oh, over coffee this morning, I was watching them all compare blisters and cuts and try to uh, decipher which tool had provided them. <laughs> so, you know, this one's maybe from a spoke shave. This one's from swinging an axe. Yeah. In, uh, and again, um, keeping tools sharp, we did just about a whole day on sharpening last week uh and in the words of our friend and guest instructor chris knapp who was here last spring he said something that i wrote down he said in 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 life lived by hand sharpness is everything and what an amazing quote to sort of sum up uh you know knowing what the tool needs to be able to do and in order to be able to do that it needs to be sharp yeah so yeah so anyway, that's what we've been up to. Um, so today we're going to talk about the the importance of craft. So the the name of this business is the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. In the past, I've defined bushcraft as the active component of our interaction with the natural world. Uh, but ultimately, terms like bushcraft, woodcraft, fieldcraft, survival, primitive skills, in my mind, it's a question of semantics. Um, and they're just terms that maybe city people have used over the last couple hundred years to describe a life, a traditional country life, you know, low tech, low inputs, or I'm sorry, low outside inputs, um, uh, 
So in many ways at this point, I feel like the term bushcraft has sort of jumped the shark with all the ridiculous gear that's associated with it and used as a marketing term. Um, when I started doing this in 1999, uh, I named the business Jack Mountain Bushcraft, and, and there's a story there. I told it in a previous episode, but I was heavily influenced by a couple of books, one by a guy named Graves and the other by a guy named Kahansky you may be familiar with. Anyway, when I told people what I did, uh, they'd say, Bushcraft, that's when you... That's when you take the shrub and, and you trim it to make it look like Mickey Mouse, right? And I would say, yeah, that's exactly what it is. But, <laughs> but you know, since then, the term bushcraft has really taken off, uh, much maybe to the detriment of the old guard of bushcraft, because now it's, again, used as a kind of a crappy uh, marketing term to describe just about everything. Um, anyway, we're going to kind of dial down into that today. What, you know, what does the craft part mean? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting to to think about you know like someone who is maybe crafting right there creating things, um, but they don't have the wood skills. And in our specific context, in the context of someone who wants to be able to travel through um, the woods comfortably or live a simple life, um, if you can craft without the wood skill, it's basically arts and crafts time, right? You don't really have the practical knowledge to be able to actually do much, even if you can make things. On the other side, if you're it, insinuating that the leather wallets that we made this morning uh, aren't useful, well, they're great. <laughs> I don't know; they don't beat our friendship bracelets. That's true. Yeah. So on one hand, if you if you have craft without the wood skill, you're limited in what you can you can actually do. In the same way, if you have wood skills, if you can start the fire, if you can cook, all those things are great. But if you're not able to make things that you need, you're now trapped to buying those things from other people. Um, and neither one of those things is ideal in our context. We want to be able to do both of those things. So to be able to live on the landscape, make what you need. We like to say, you know, it's it's a simple life outdoors with a few simple tools. So, for example, you, you could go out in the woods and make an axe. There's a video. Do you remember what that one's called? Have you guys seen that? These uh, guys go out and build a forge and smelt the iron and make an axe. No. And, so that's kind of an extreme example. So for us, you know, maybe we travel. Maybe we're taking off on a month-long trip. So in addition to our sleeping bags, we've got an axe, a knife, maybe a saw blade, maybe an old file to keep the axe sharp and when that gets dull we'll turn that into a into another knife or some other sort of tool so so that's kind of the idea mm -hmm. um so just to touch on what you said you know i like to use uh academic terms when we can because it makes us sound wicked smart <laughs> so the uh <laughs> we need all the help we can get <laughs> the term bce or before common era i like to to flip on its head a little bit um and say, you know, BCE with regards to bushcraft was before the consumerist era, mm -hmm. meaning back before there was every imaginable outdoor product that could be shipped to you in two days or less. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we're going to talk about what it was like to live BCE. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think we've outlined about three main points um, why, why we think that craft matters in this context. Um, and the first one is the idea of being freed from the need to buy things from other people and the understanding of quality that comes from that, right? So if you make a canoe paddle, even if you make a bad one, by the end of that process, when you get on the lake and you start to paddle with it, you're gonna understand what does and what doesn't work and why. Whereas if you go to 
some big box store and the guy behind the cash register just tells you, here, this is the one you need. Because he's it, an expert. Because he's an expert <laughs> and you know nothing about canoe paddles. What? How do you know what quality is? How do you know that he knows what he's talking about? Um, so yeah, when you when you make something, you start to understand its its value. Yeah, and to make that an even more kind of personal note, there's we were talking about watching all these different paddles kind of grow, and they're all they're all different and all that kind of thing. And we had a lot of students out, come up to us and ask us, you know, what's the next step? What's the right thing to do here? How thin do I need this to be? And really the only answer for a project like this is what, what feels good to you to paddle for a day. Mm. And may, some of them don't know that, but you can test that out by having them swing it around and see if it feels heavy. And mm. I think that's a super rewarding experience for people. And when they're done with it, they're not going to go banging it on rocks intentionally and all that other kind of stuff. Whereas if we handed them a plastic mm. one, we could expect maybe two or three of them back broken. Uh, yeah, so in, in addition to not having to buy things from other people, it's also maybe not having to interrupt a trip. So I've been out on trips before when people break canoe poles. And one of the things before people are allowed to go on our four-week canoe expedition, they have to show up with their own paddle. They have to have made a canoe pole. And the logic behind that is, number one, they understand a bit of the process. But number two, if we're out you know, 60, 80 miles from a road and they break something, they don't look at me as if I'm going to somehow produce an extra paddle, pull, whatever. I look at them and say, well, you've made it before. You know how to do it. Get to it. So the idea of, of you know, not having to postpone or, or end an experience because simply because a piece of gear failed. And we've had that happen. Um, we've had people break just about everything imaginable has happened on long trips. Uh, uh, funny story, a few years ago, one of the guys broke a pole. He had to make one, so he cut this horrible piece of balsam fur, and his hands were all black from the sap. And, and ironically, the very next day, we were carrying around a little waterfall, and somebody had left a canoe pole leaning against a tree. Hmm. And I just, I looked at the pole and I brought it up to the guy and I was like, man, it's your lucky day. Wow. Uh, but it was like, uh, yeah, I, I didn't tell him that I found it. I, I let him think that I made it. <laughs> <laughs> I think one more interesting note on, uh, on quality is that, you know, Tim, something you're always talking about is whenever we get into making something with people for the first time, what we always say is it's about the process. It's not about the product. We don't expect people to make the most incredible, you know, wind tunnel designed canoe paddle the first time they touch a draw knife to a piece of wood. Um, what we're really trying to do is teach people the process so that they can repeat it on their own in different contexts. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And just one last point about the consumerist world is a homogenous world. Like if we went out there to that big box store you were referencing, they're going to have maybe two different kinds of paddles, you know, a plastic T-grip handle and aluminum shaft and maybe some other piece of mass produced garbage. Mm. The idea is that if you look at canoe paddles, if we look at snowshoes, uh, things like that, they all existed within certain regional and cultural boundaries. Mm -hmm. So if we think of all, if we were to line up all the different styles of canoe paddle that have ever been made, it would be in the hundreds, if not thousands, if we lined them all up next to each other. Mm -hmm. And what 
passes as a canoe paddle these days is maybe one of two mass-produced plastic designs. So just the the anthropology and the history mm. of it mm. is is fascinating to me. And mm. you know, for example, the types of paddles that we make here. Um, are not mass produced anywhere as far as I know uh, with a big wide throat they're taller than you are and that's because of the regional paddling style based on the weather that we have here with the rivers drying up in the summer and we spend a lot of time standing so they're a lot longer they have a big wide throat big guide grip on them um, but anyway just you know if you make it yourself you can make it however you like you don't have to settle for the one of two bad options that they have down to the uh down to the big box store yeah the diversity and just if just talking about the grip every single one of those out there is different and totally suited to every student's hand because they made it themselves to fit their own hand and that's a pretty impressive uh pretty impressive feat if you ask me Mm. yeah so that's point number one uh what's point number two here (laughs) uh so this is uh having a greater knowledge and appreciation for the land and um and kind of where things come from and understanding your place in it. And so just a quick little story from this summer, um, I ran a couple kids programs and one of the projects we did was spoon burning. Um, and while we were doing this, a kid, it, it occurred to him that people made spoons. He had thought of them as a, just an entity that existed in the world, not something that took time to prepare. And through that, he and I were just chatting about it and he, started seeing things differently everything um we this took place at a small museum in new hampshire and so when we walked in seeing his eyes kind of light up every time he looked at a, a primitive fork or some other kind of utensil that somebody had made and understanding that somebody put effort into that and had an understanding of where it came from was just really cool to see in such a young person yeah, one of the things we, we did the first week of the course, and I don't think we talked about it last time, but we like to get people out in the woods and we just go through the process of making a bow drill fire from scratch. We walk out with an axe and with a knife. Um, together we find a tree, we process it, and, and make a bow drill fire right there. And um, I think that's really incredible for people to see the first time. You know, a lot of times people go to a, to a class and, you know, it's an instructor in a parking lot on a sunny day with a bow drill set that people don't really know where it came from. Maybe he bought it off Amazon or it's like the best wood that comes from California or some crazy thing like that. But here we walk out and it's wet. Um, and that just changes the way you look at the world. I don't walk through these woods anymore and see like, Oh, that's a balsam fir. Or, oh, that's, I see like there's fire right there. You know, there's food there, there's medicine there, whatever, um, shelter, all the things, um, are right there in front of me. And I think that changes so much about how you view the world. Um, it's hard to look at an iPhone and think that that came from the natural world, but basically all material, I mean, not basically all material culture comes from the resources that we, we can get from the land. We've just really, um, become super advanced in how we can process those materials. And so they look less and less like something that we might find in native cultures. I think it's interesting to consider the deep knowledge of say someone from before the consumerist era with regards to the landscape so say if you have a tree that has blown over and then grows up chasing the light so there's a big sweeping bend in it maybe that would be the ideal wood for a bow so shallow knowledge would be say you make a bow out of wood a little bit deeper knowledge would be you make a bow out of uh, insert species name here in these woods let's maybe say white ash 
and deeper knowledge yet would be where is that white ash growing? You know, is it on the edge of a field? Is it in a wetland? Did it have some stresses early on that would give that, you know, super tight growth rings for really good spring? So those sorts of things. Um, there's a fantastic book that uh, Morris Kahansky told me about like 20 years ago, and I have a, bought a couple of copies. I don't even know if you can still get it used, but it was called Craftsman of Necessity. And the author was a uh, professor of, uh, oh, what do they call it when you build stuff? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. Lincoln Logs. Yeah, the author was a professor, uh, and he, and I think his wife, took a trip from Western Europe down around through the Middle East and across North Africa. And what they did was, uh, through beautiful text and a lot of photos, documented the ways that people lived kind of in harmony with their environment, which is totally different and totally at odds with with how we do things in the United States uh, in just in Western countries today. You know, looking out, if you look at traditional structures, they're built uh, with materials directly from the landscape. If you look at modern structures, it's dimensional lumber, and we'll build them the same whether we're in Alaska or Florida, right? With totally different environments, uh, you know, totally different uh, raw materials, all those things. So just that that deep knowledge of the land is is uh, what I wanted to, to talk about. And just a, a quick example of that, you know, I think the, the cover of the book is um, a picture of a part of a gate that someone had made somewhere in Eastern Europe. And it was where a tree had come up and there were th- three different... Uh, uh, three different branches coming off the main trunk and they had cut that and used it and it fit perfectly in the gate. So in the book, they talked about how maybe the person looked for that perfect stick for a year or two as they wandered around, mm-hmm. right? And and having that deep knowledge of the land of what what tree is going to make that last the longest, right? Mm-hmm. What's going to what's gonna fit it just perfectly? And then finding the one that looks and fits just perfectly. That's a whole different animal than going and buying a bunch of dimensional lumber and cobbing it together with nails and screws. Yeah. And I think that plays right into your, you know, how all this stuff changes your view of the world. Um, it might not even be that you're out there specifically lurking, looking for that perfect piece of wood. I think it's more that you start to recognize what is available to you. You see that just as maybe you're walking through the woods doing something else and you go, wait a minute, I know what that's for. I know what that can become. And so it's, it's not, it it almost can become like a passive thing um, where you're just recognizing what's out there. To some extent too, I think it changes the brain or or maybe the eyes. Um, And my example would be when we do hand drill fires, uh, we'll often use uh, common mullen and people will say, what's that plant? And then once you introduce it to them and show them what it can be used for, a week later, they see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, they spent their whole life up to that point and never noticed it. But once they noticed it, now they start to see it everywhere. Yeah, so good. another good example of that from this course. Um, we have a student that one of our first plant walks, we talked about bunchberry tea and how it works as a uh, natural serotonin enhancer. Uh, I don't know. That's we're, we're, close enough. We're treading on dangerous ground here, given that information. Oh, that everybody, I apologize. Everybody will be out uh, over harvesting. But he, um, this this whole last week, he's been drinking that every time it gets rainy and he starts to feel a little down. He's been using it, and it's just cool to see him as we've been walking to another plant walks. So we'll be talking about different plants, and he'll see bunchberry and pick up a bunch of it and stick it in his pocket for later. Um, 
sort of exactly what you're saying about the Mullen, but sort of a we're not actually giving example. any medical advice here. Before no. you ingest any wild plant, you should definitely get the okay of a hobo who lives under a bridge, <laughs> like one of us. <laughs> so the the third big point is just the confidence that is gained um, when you make what you need. Uh, you know, the world is a different place when you have the confidence to take care of yourself than it is when you feel adrift and sort of at the whim of, of retailers and whatnot. If you feel confident that with a few simple tools that you can make a go of it in the forest or on a long expedition for a, for a long period of time, I'm of the belief that you literally live in a different world. Like you experience the world differently than, than if you feel, I don't know, as a victim or, you know, that, that the world is sort of out of your control. Yeah, I think uh, that's never more true than on when you're on or when we're on uh, remote expeditions, right? When we're out there and like you were talking about um, canoe pole breaks, canoe paddle breaks. Um, and you don't have to worry about that because you know how to make those things. You know what you need to do um, to get get back to where you were. So it's, um, a, it's a huge difference between thinking you can and knowing you can because you've done it in the past. Absolutely. This was true on our snowshoe expedition um, earlier this year. We were out doing our Frozen 48 exercise where we'll go out for everyone. will go out on their own for two nights um, and spend two nights out there alone and build shelter and take nothing but an axe and maybe a pot um, and a water bottle, something like that. Um, but when I was out, um, it was, uh, oh man, what was happening? It was, the weather was getting warm. That's what it was. And I think it rained, it was kind of freezing rain that night. And we're but probably for the, for the listener, we're a 12 mile snowshoe walk out. Uh, so we're not next to the parking lot, right? It's, it's a pretty good ways out and it had yep. been really cold. It had been like 30 below at night and yep. zero during the day. And the, probably the hardest conditions in the winter time when you're used to subarctic or, or boreal forest is the thaw because you become less mobile. So yeah. just to set the stage, Ben's out Absolutely. there. It's been bitter cold, and then it starts to get warm. And probably an hour into um, finding firewood for the night, um, I broke uh, the frame on one of my snowshoes. I took a big fall while I was carrying a log, and a snowshoe frame cracked um, clear through. And uh, that's bad. I mean, you couldn't walk in that snow without, without snowshoes. So I'm sitting there like, uh, this is really not good, but probably maybe took me 30, 40 minutes to, you know, find a hardwood tree. I think I took a, a yellow birch and I carved, uh, carved some splints out of it and I lashed it on with the string that I had and I was back in business. You know, it wasn't a hundred percent, but it got me through that night. I was able to build my shelter, get enough firewood and, all was well. You but, walked out on it too, so it, yeah, that, I'd say it that was, was probably that, yeah. It was uh, <laughs> yeah. That was another week we had, I think, past that point, um, and to get back. Just to talk a little bit about like the snow depth there in the bush was it five to seven feet. Yeah, you couldn't walk without snowshoes. No, you could impossible because we tried it the next week when it started yeah. to thaw. And yeah, every step, not fun over your hip. It was yeah. brutal. Yeah. Waist deep snow. It's a little shallower on the lake where it's been windblown, but it's still probably three and a half feet yeah. of snow on top of the ice. So, yeah, snowshoes yeah. are a necessity. And, Absolutely. you know, it's always good to keep in mind one person's uh, 
near-death occurrence would be uh, another person's just a day at the office, right? So mm-hmm. if if Ben had been somebody else and had never done that and maybe he had fancier aluminum, titanium, unobtainium mm-hmm. snowshoes mm-hmm. and then he cracked one or something and, you know, then insert harrowing tale of survival that gets him on all the TV talk shows. But because he had that <laughs> mentality of craft and knew how to fix things, it's no big deal. So the usually the people that are going to tell the crazy stories on daytime talk shows about how they survived or whatever mm. don't have that because the when you don't have the ability to fix your stuff you're you you have way more ability to to ramp up the drama. Yep. Wood skill without craft, really really bad in that context. <laughs> so yeah, again, crafting here is often maligned people will say oh is it arts and crafts time or whatever and and uh i'm not a huge fan of people making that uh, statement because i think no we're making what we need to live in this environment and crafting is what makes us Mm -hmm. self-reliant being able to make what we need with a simple toolkit is what allows us to live here and live here comfortably agreed yeah anything else gentlemen I need another cup of coffee. We should wrap this up. (laughs) Well, thank you again for listening. Again, this is episode 25 of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast. Check out the show notes uh, for links to the books and things that we mentioned. And we look forward to uh, recording another one soon. So come on back. Thank you. (laughs) 